Welcome to the Green Man Podcast. You're listening to the Green Man Podcast. Welcome to the Green Man Podcast. Hello, everybody. Um, our next guest you may have seen on this stage before. We're delighted that she's here to talk about her own book this time, the Nan Shepherd winning um, Uprooting. This is Marshall Farrell, and she'll be in conversation with Isabel Berwick from the FT. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here with Marshall Farrell. She's a therapist, a writer, and a gardener, and she's the author of a brand new memoir, Uprooting, which is fantastic. It's won the Nan Shepherd Prize. And the subtitle of this book, set for once, it says exactly what it is in the tin. <laughs> it's from the Caribbean to the countryside, finding home in an English country garden. And, and in it, Marshall essentially asks the question, what is home? Yeah. Um, and, it's, and she answers that beautifully. So I hope during this talk, you'll get a feel for Marshall, her book, her garden. So I wanted to begin by setting the scene for the audience. You know, how did you come to conceive this book? Did the garden come first or did the writing come first? Oh, the garden definitely very much came first. Um, I was a jobbing psychiatrist before, <laughs> um, working, well, my consultant psychiatrist and medical psychotherapy to give the full awkward title. And um, I had gotten to a point of being uh, burnt out, really. Um, and my husband is also a consultant doctor, and we kind of reached the point where it felt like one family supporting two consultants was a bit unsustainable. And I decided that I would, we'd pursue one career for a while, I'd take a break, and um, he got a job um, in Bath, and we thought we'd move near Bath, and we took a real leap in moving to the countryside. I had never lived in the countryside before, I was very wary of moving to the countryside, um, as a black woman, there aren't a lot of us living in the countryside. Um, but we kind of fell in love with this house, or really with the garden, actually. And I sort of landed there and thought that it would be a brief period of kind of settling in. And then I would pick myself up again and get back into work, probably as a therapist of some kind. And then, of course, the pandemic happened. Um, and then George Floyd was murdered. And I have written before, um, but something compelled me to start writing again at this point in time and to start sharing it online. And I still don't know what compelled me to do that, actually, to kind of start sharing it publicly. And I started a newsletter and then started getting a lot of feedback from people about finding my writing really helpful in terms of helping them to make sense of a time that felt quite mad. Um, but really, what I was writing felt very much as though it was coming from the garden. I was spending a lot of time in the garden, gardening, and it felt as though when I was out there, that's where my thoughts were clarifying, and you know, that's where things were starting to make sense to me, where links were, were coming together. And so the book is very much of its place. I mean, I, I often say if we'd moved to any other place, any other garden, I'd have written a very different story. And I consider our garden a co-creator, a co-author of this book, actually, because it's very much emerged from the soil of, of this place. And um, the way you portray the garden, you know, your first glimpse of the garden, I think is wonderful. Would you, could you read the bit where you, you and your family yeah. first see the garden and then we can 
delve a little bit into it, because sometimes it's very hard to say in words a very visual image, you know, but it's, you just do it in such a precise way. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, so I'll write, I'll read a bit from, yes, when we first met the garden. The first thing we saw was the garden. Heads full of all the other houses we had already viewed that day, we pulled into the drive, tyres crunching on gravel, and got out. Next to the driveway was a lawn, rimmed by a stream, bordered by a native hedge. A field lay beyond, a wood rose behind that, hugging the edge of the valley in which the house sat. The stream was shallow and babbled merrily over the gravel base. At one point there was a bridge over it to a little patio framed by a pair of small trees and edged with what looked like black grass. On the other side of the lawn was a bed with a tree that Ollie recognised as a quince, mounds of geraniums, and a neat box hedge that offered a glimpse of garden beds beyond. My heart was pounding. I was not sure I had ever seen anything so enchanting placed almost within my grasp. I hardly remembered what I saw that day, my mind a jumble of fleeting images with an overall impression of overwhelming rightness. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, this was the place for us. There was old local stone, terrace after terrace carved out of the steeply sloping land that curved all around the house, the sound of water everywhere as the natural spring that emerged from under the roots of the ash tree at the top of the garden made its way down through the channels that had been created for it. I made my way through the interconnected garden terraces as through a series of rooms. I was besotted. I love that. But you hadn't actually had much gardening experience. Can you tell us a little bit? Because you, had, you loved gardens when you were growing up, but what, what course had your gardening taken before this? Yeah, so I grew up in my grandmother's garden, first of all, because um, extended family living is still quite common in Trinidad. So we lived with my grandmother when I was, pretty, when I was very little. And my, all of my earliest memories are of you know, sitting underneath her Exora hedge um, in a sort of den, making fairy potions and all that kind of a thing, or climbing the trees in the back, backyard, as we call it in Trinidad, mango and all that sort of business. So I was, I was always immersed in the garden, and she loved roses. <laughs> she used to grow roses. She used to try to grow roses in the tropics. Um, they didn't do so successfully, and I have to admit I'd never understood the beauty the appeal of a rose until I came to England and saw them here because his didn't look, didn't look that great, you know, no, no shade to my grandma. But um, so I grew up in her garden and then when I was in my early teens, my parents bought their own house and it took me a while to make the link actually that this house that we've bought now, the way the house sits in the topography of the land is very similar to that house that my parents bought. It was also a steeply sloping site and the way the house kind of sat in the middle of the plot and um, the way the land kind of rose and fell around it and there was a tree with bats and we have bats in the attic of our house. And, you know, there are all these links that I didn't consciously make when I first saw our house. But I think that's part of why I fell in love with it so instantly. But that house in Trinidad, we, with my parents, we gardened. We, we kind of formed the garden together. I was um, really geeky about plants at that point and got really involved in planting up that garden with them. But then I moved to England and completely forgot that plants existed. You know, I was at university, I was busy working, 
um, they didn't kind of really cross my mind consciously at all until I had my kids. And then I went a little bit mad <laughs> and bought a lot of houseplants, um, which I think was a way of trying to reconnect with my tropical roots as I became a mother and tried to negotiate mothering and was missing my own mother who was back in Trinidad um, and kind of filled up our house with all these houseplants. And that was my way back in really. Um, from that point, I kind of started gardening again, faced as a millennial with a lot of houseplants. Um, but then in lots of pots, we had a tiny postage stamp patio outside, like smaller than this stage, like really quite small. Um, I started gardening in pots and then just, it just felt more and more of an urge to want to root into the soil and grow in soil. Um, and so we took this leap into this house with a, with a garden, but no, I had no experience <laughs> of gardening. And much of the book set during COVID, yeah. um, that, that, the particular quality of that first lockdown, the very warm weather, but the very locked in yeah. sense. I mean, that's when the book starts. Do, do you think it would have been different if it hadn't been in lockdown? How, do you think that particular combination of circumstances triggered something? In you? And then you've already mentioned George Floyd. You know, so many things were going on for you. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, normally when you move to a place, um, a lot of it is about the relationships that you form with people. You know, you kind of get to know the different people in your neighborhood and you join groups or not, depending on what kind of personality you're like. I'm a bit of a joiner, as it turns out. Um, and you, you get to form relationships with the place in that way, through the other humans. But that was all stripped away in COVID. And so I found myself, in a way, almost forced into quite an intimate relationship with the literal place, with the actual kind of soil of the garden. And that was, I suppose, in a way, a gift for me, really. Um, I have always been interested in relationship with place. When I was very junior as a psychiatrist, I remember learning a statistic that has stuck with me ever since, which was that um, for black Caribbean people born in the UK, so not me as an immigrant, but my children, they have a nine times higher risk of schizophrenia than white English, than, than their white English you know, compatriots at school. And that's, there's nothing genetic about that because were they, born in the, were they to be born in the Caribbean, they would have the same baseline rate. So there's something specific about the relationship with this place that makes them so much more at risk. And actually, one of the factors that increases that risk particularly is urbanicity, is living in cities. Um, so I suppose it's really no surprise that when I had children of my own, I felt drawn to move to the countryside um, to try, I suppose, and reduce how potentially maddening the experience of being black Caribbean British might be for them. So relationship with place has been a thing that I've been a bit interested in for a while, and it's a thing that's very neglected in um, psychotherapy. It's not something that we had ever thought about or studied, despite knowing these kind of risks, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a neglected relationship in terms of all the relationships that we consider. And so I was handed this opportunity to think really deeply about relationship with place, locked into this one place. Um, and I suppose that's really where the kind of thinking in the book has kind of emerged from. And what's your relationship to the place now, the wider mm -hmm. village, which you, you know, as lockdown lifts, you depict it very beautifully, people, you know, people share vegetables and fruit, and you, I, I don't know, you, you start a local group, don't you? 
Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> I've got my finger in lots of pies. I mean, it feels like home. It feels like home. Um, and it is a very welcoming and very sociable community. Um, and my family and I feel really loved there, which is a, a beautiful, you know, that sort of, I mean, that's what I was looking for for my children. Um, so it feels very special to have kind of found that. And a lot of the book is about your different identities and exploring those through the garden and also your memories of Trinidad and all sorts of other mm. things. And it can be quite uncomfortable, you know, as a white reader, it can be quite uncomfortable because we have this unquestioned sense of belonging in the English countryside. And I, I really valued what you said about that to make, you know, to make me take a step back and think about things. You know, do you think your concept of your many identities has changed during this and after this? That is a very interesting question. I, I don't think so. I think that I have been thinking about identity and belonging actually for quite a long time. It's really when I had finished writing the book, and I think it was probably I had gotten to the stage of like a, a proof, um, and I gave it to my husband to read finally, and uh, you know, with some trepidation, and he read it, and he handed it back to me, and I was like, well, <laughs> what do you think? And he was like, yeah, it's good. And I was like, good? Uh, damn me with, with faint praise, why don't you? But um, his point was that actually I've been talking about a lot of this stuff with him for a really long time. You know, I've been, I've been working this through in my thinking for a really long time. And I think what happened was that the particular circumstances and the place helped to kind of crystallize some of my thoughts so that image in the form of, of this book. But it's really interesting what you say about um, feeling as though reading the book invited you to sit with some discomfort because that's, that's wonderful. That's what I really hope for, for the reader. Um, you know, we're kind of socialised, I think, to avoid discomfort at all costs, to avoid pain, as if pain is just a really bad thing. And, of course, pain does not feel nice and... You know, living with chronic pain is massively debilitating, but acute, an acute pain in the body is a distress signal. You know, it's an invitation for us to turn towards the pain and to attend and tend to it so that we can work out what the source of it is. And if we ignore it and repress it and suppress it, like we tend to do a lot of the time now, particularly for psychic pain, for pain in the mind, it doesn't go away, actually. It just festers. And also, the, you know, when we, when we think that we're just numbing and dissociating from pain, we actually can't do that to our emotions in isolation. So when we're trying to suppress our capacity to feel pain, we're also suppressing our ability to feel joy and bliss and awe and transcendence and all the amazing things that actually make life worth living. You know, so sitting with some discomfort could make your experience of Green Man Festival way better <laughs> because you can embrace the joy of the experience that much more. Um, and that's what I want for all of us, really. And actually, I think that's what's kind of missing quite a lot from kind of modern society. I think that's one of our kind of big ills at the moment. Um, and really, you know, a pain shared is a pain halved, isn't it? So I, as a black woman, I can't really ignore the kind of pain and wounding of my kind of history and even my present, you know, still today, 
where we both defined ourselves needing maternity services and touch wood, that's not me, um, I would be five times more likely to die today in 2023, you know, which is, so, so the pain is still very real and obvious and, you know, in my face, I can't kind of turn away from it. But I think the pain belongs to all of us, you know, the discomfort belongs to all of us. And I, I think about that when I look at the land and I look at our relationship with this land and I look at the fact that we live in one of the most nature depleted countries in Europe. Um, and you know, it isn't wounded black people who've come and done this, you know, it is, it is the white British people who have had this kind of damaged and damaging relationship with, with, your, with our own landscape. And so I think if we can sit with some discomfort, we can begin to heal a lot of relationships that really need tending to. Yeah, and I, 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 in the book, I, I really enjoyed, if that's the right word, the way that you went through the full range of emotions. Mm. As the year goes by, it's a sort of, you know, it's, a, it's a diary of a year, really, yeah. at its heart. Yeah. And you really have great highs and great lows that don't always match the growing season. It's interesting. Yeah. And, and one of the things, just to touch on some of the things you've mentioned there, is, and I had never thought about this before, to my great discredit, this distinction between native and imported plants. Mm. And you, th I, I, you, there's a lovely phrase, or a, you know, a phrase that really struck me. You were homesick for a colonial creation when you thought about Trinidad and the gardens you had there when you realized that those were imported plants and the indigenous plants in Trinidad had been erased, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you build a garden here? Do you make that distinction between import and what we, you know, should we call it native and import? Are those the wrong terms? Oh, I mean, the language is really fraught. And actually, I spoke to Melissa about this yesterday because I thought her language in this yeah. was really beautiful. And, you know, she uses quite precise terms, native and non-native, but also naturalized, which is, I think, a really, yes. you know, that's a very accurate phrase. You've been here for a long time and you've become part of the natural landscape. Um, and, you know, I think it's holding the nuance. So I don't... I invite everything into my garden, but I do particularly make space for the weeds, as they <laughs> have long been known, which, as it turns out, are mostly native plants that belong to this, that belong to this landscape and are really beneficial and um, often quite medicinal. You know, they have, like, massive value. Um, so I welcome them into my garden, but I do also welcome in things that I think that are beautiful that are not native, you know, so I kind of hold them both in this space. Um, but I think more widely, it's, it's holding it with, with nuance, you know, and kind of recognizing that the plants, we, we project a lot of villainousness onto the plants, a lot of villainy onto the plants, you know, all those terrible invasive plants. Well, we brought them here, and we were the ones who then created the changing climate conditions that have allowed plants to become invasive and to take over and to crowd out other plants and reduce biodiversity. So actually, you know, it's, it, it, we are implicated in this and we need to kind of just sit more thoughtfully with this whole um, distinction. You know, it's not the plants that are the bad guys. <laughs> it, it was us, really, initially. Uh with this, do you hope to change gardening, if I say discourse more generally? It's very traditional, isn't it, how we talk about gardening in this country? Um, I think that's a really ambitious aim, isn't it, <laughs> to change gardening discourse? Ooh, uh, I don't know. I, I would really hope 
for people who read the book to I, I really want them to feel something. My main aim is that the person who, that someone who reads the book feels something. And that hopefully that brings something about in them, some kind of change. You know, they think maybe differently about something or they, it makes them want to go and touch the soil, you know, and get to know a patch of land and get to love it, really. Um, because I think that's what brings about change. You know, it's not really kind of clever, logical arguments um, that make us change our behavior. It's actually feeling something different that makes us change our behavior. So really, that's what I hope for for the book, that people read it and feel something. It's, it's as simple as that. It made me feel I wish I had a garden. So oh. that's <laughs> more profound than that. And one of my favorite bits was when the plants pop up you know mm. as the year goes on you get these surprises in your garden yeah and and some of them are really extraordinary but is that still happening or have you found everything now oh still happening <laughs> uh, absolutely still happening and i love that actually i love that the garden has a will of its own um and no matter how much you think that you might be uh, the one in charge of a space you definitely are not you know down to things like even plants that I introduce, and I kind of think, well, this dahlia is going to be that color, so that will be great. And it turns out to be a totally different color. And, you know, I don't know if I've got the wrong bulb or if it's something about the particular interaction of that plant with my specific site that means that the colors look a very different way to expect it. You know, the, the plants are always doing different things all the time. You know, one delightful surprise I had this year was forget-me-nots. I haven't had them in my garden up until this point, but this spring they appeared in droves and that was just magical and delightful. And so I think leaving space for things to welcome themselves into your garden feels really important to me because it just brings such joy and delight. And when you describe the garden, it's, you know, it's, it's stepped. It's, yes. <laughs> have you planted it in a very intentional way is it a mix have you changed your you know is it a, how have you changed your con how's your concept of the garden changed as you've lived there oh that's a really good question so it is very stepped i mean when you're standing at the what we call the top of the garden you see over the roof line of the house um and the house pretty much ends up being three stories and then you're below the bottom story by the time you get down to the bottom of the garden. So when in the book I write about lugging bags of compost from the driveway down at the bottom up to the top, it's quite a feat. <laughs> I, got, I got pretty strong in lockdown doing that, not going to lie. But um, what that gives to the space is this real sense of immersion, actually, because you're always climbing up steps, you're often meeting plants at eye level in a way that in walking through a traditional kind of flat garden, I think you, can, might, you might be looking down at a lot of plants. So it gives a, it gives a real intimacy to the space. You're, you're often at, at eye level, at close, at close proximity with things. Um, and, I, and I think that's probably why on my social media, I, I post a lot of close-up photos of the, of the flowers because that's the way the garden feels to me. Um, and we like, I like to let it be a bit kind of lush and loose and overgrown, you know, so that as you walk along the paths, things are brushing against you. As you come out the front door, the lavender's spilling over. And, you know, I, I, it feels very intimate um, with, the, with the plants. I mean, some bits of it I have planted up intentionally. Um, we are a frost pocket just because of how we sit in our 
village. We're kind of hugged in a little bit of in a valley, so the cold air pours down into us. And so I'm always looking for things that are as hardy as possible that will be able to survive a winter in our kind of um, frost pocket garden. I am very interested in plants that have herbal properties, medicinal properties. Um, that was one of the things that drew me into a relationship with plants before we had a garden of our own, was um, starting to notice the weeds around me and starting to become curious about who they were and then looking up like, well, is this edible? <laughs> Could I do something with this? Um, and actually, I have a real practice where I go around the garden making garden tea, where I take a sort of little basket from a loose leaf teapot and I just pluck whatever's edible. Um, it's helped me to get really good with my plant identification because you, <laughs> you've got to be pretty sure of what you're putting in the basket. Um, but it also feels like a, just a really another quite intimate way of getting to know the garden. You know, I kind of see the plants, I appreciate them, but then I also drink them. You know, I kind of take them into myself. And, um, you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as these kind of quite static creatures, particularly when you reach adulthood, we think we're formed. But actually, you know, our cells are reforming and reshaping themselves all the time, constantly, um, through the molecules that you eat and the oxygen that you breathe in and all of that stuff. And so it, I, liked, I like to think of the way that being in this garden and kind of consuming it in a way um, is, it is, it is literally shaping me. Um, and I'm shaping it, you know, as I walk through the garden and I'm shedding cells and I'm breathing out and the garden's taking in my carbon dioxide and using it to make the carbon of its structure. You know, the garden and I are becoming much more one. <laughs> um, and I think that's, that, you know, that's something that exists for all of us all the time, but we don't often think about it. We, we've kind of forgotten how we belong to place so very profoundly actually you know at a real kind of cellular molecular level we intrinsically belong which is which is beautiful i think and it's just, it's a another aspect of your medical training almost was there mm. you know has all that been lost in medical training that kind of plant based healing or is it something you could remember from your childhood and came back to oh that's really yeah no I didn't encounter it in my medical training at all sadly um you know it was all about pills and packets and you know pharmaceutical prescriptions but my grandmother she used to use uh traditional plant-based things I remember she would make me drink this really bitter she always used to tell me that I was too hot I ran too hot as a child you know you need cooling was what she would tell me um, and she would make these intensely bitter drinks for me. I remember this aloes water, which, oh, it was just the most horrible thing. And, but, you know, with a Caribbean grandmother, you, you do what they tell you to do. Like, there's no, there's, there's no getting away from that. And then I found in some supermarket, you know, walking through a quite trendy, one of these, I don't know, posh artisanal organic and there was aloes water as like the latest superfood. And I thought, oh my God, like she had this knowledge. She knew, <laughs> she knew this. And I had, been, I had been a bit dismissive of her knowledge. You know, I had been a bit like, oh, this is like superstition. These are old wives' tales. This is obia, which is the kind of Trinidadian word for um, a kind of bush medicine, a sort of, you know, traditional healing um, and spirituality kind of mixed together. And, and so I had been quite dismissive of her 
suggestions. <laughs> but actually, she wasn't wrong. And I remember going to see an acupuncturist as well at one point. Um, and the acupuncturist told me, you're too hot. <laughs> and I was like, my grandmother has been telling me this since I was a child. She clearly knew her stuff. Yes, yeah, she's always telling you you're hot. Yeah. That I run need, hot. I need cooling. Yes. That, was, that was her constant thing. You need cooling, child. You need cooling. Yeah. Is there a particular herbal tea that you could recommend to the audience? Oh, for cooling? Or for anything? I What's mean, I think, <laughs> I think anything with a bitter taste is supposed to be cooling. So I think a lot of us have lost, actually, the taste for bitterness in our palate in the modern world with eating a lot of sugary things. So we probably, most of us, could benefit from some cooling. Um, I, some of my favorites, so in our garden, we have a big, lush patch of lemon balm, um, which is a real favorite of mine, actually, and I make a lot of tea with that. And as it turns out, it's also apparently a really good nervine. So if you're somebody who can be a bit kind of jittery and anxious and maybe a bit hot, <laughs> um, I, think it's, it's, I think that's quite good for you. Another thing are nettles. Nettles are supposed to be amazing. I mean, you know, they, I often mix them with mint because I don't find the taste of them to be that spectacular on their own. Um, but when they come into first leaf in the spring... This, you know, because they're really deep-rooted plants, and I think they draw up a lot of like minerals and things from the soil that actually we often end up being quite depleted in after a long winter. Um, so drinking nettle tea in the spring when the plants are sort of flush and they flush of green is supposed to be really good for you. But um, we're not in lockdown now. We aren't. No, you've written a book. How much time do you spend gardening now? Have you gone in back into practice? How do you spend your time? Um, the garden has most certainly been quite neglected in the process of writing about the garden <laughs> um, and now kind of going out and promoting a book about the garden. So, so yes, the garden is kind of hanging in there and doing its own thing um, in a lot of ways, which is actually really beautiful to see that some of the bits that we kind of went in and planted up in that first year are kind of really coming into their own and actually settling into themselves and doing their own thing. So I feel quite pleased with the space. Um, how, what am I spending my time doing now? I am still very much a mother looking after my kids. Um, I am writing quite a lot still. I've got, as well as this book out, I've got a piece in, there's, you know, one of those, those Daunt anthologies um, there's one coming out called To the River later this year and I've got a piece in that called Memory River which starts in this stream in our garden goes through the rivers in Trinidad that I used to swim in as a child and ends in the sea so um, I really love that I really loved writing that piece and I do a lot in the kind of community that I live in particularly linked with the school I kind of feel like the school's my natural home at the minute so I run a school gardening club and, um, yeah, kind of I'm busy in all sorts of ways there, really. Because while we've been talking, it struck me that, you know, you're an expert in the mind and increasingly we're hearing about school gardening, gardening for mental health. Is that, was that something that was prevalent when you were practicing or do you think it's come out of the pandemic? Because there's, there's this real awareness now of a connection with nature as a... As a 
tool for mental well-being? There is. I think it was growing before the pandemic, but I think that the pandemic has really kind of cemented the need for that. I think people, a lot of people experienced it and sort of went, gosh, <laughs> yes, we really do need this. Um, and I think that's brilliant. I mean, I think the trope of gardening is good for our health, I find that one slightly difficult because I think... Actually, if we think about it, it's kind of flipped on its head, that's probably more accurate. You know, it's not that if I go and spend some time in the garden, that will make me feel a little bit better. I think it's that as a species, we have forgotten our animal, mammal selves that intrinsically are part of nature and that intrinsically need to be part of the natural world. And we've become quite kind of insulated from the natural world in lots of ways by how we live. And that actually, that has probably driven us a bit mad <laughs> as a species. I think, and I think if you think about it that way, you kind of realise how profoundly our need for you know, reconnecting ourselves and allowing ourselves to be more in natural spaces um, you know how, how vital that really is for us so yes I think it's brilliant that's becoming more of a thing more common I think social prescribing is growing and gardening for mental health and all sorts of gardening therapy practices are growing um, and that is definitely something that I'm excited to get more involved with yeah <laughs> I wanted to ask about your children because they were quite small when they moved to the house yeah are they co-creators in the garden now? Have you passed on this love? I mean, you know, they're quite young. I can see one of them running around at the back with a bubble gun. Um, so, um, <laughs> I mean, they spend a lot of time in the garden. And our garden is a very unfussy place, and I do that deliberately so that I never have to feel that I tell them no to being in any particular bit of it that you know that they can feel free to engage with the space and use it imaginatively in whatever way appeals to them so there's quite a lot of the kind of play that i used to do as a child you know kind of mud pies and fairy potions and all of that kind of a thing they will come and plant with me sure and they do have their own bits that they know they can plant up if they want to but you know they play they play with the space so what i might see as a right way to interact with the garden um, I have very much have to let go of that <laughs> and allow them to kind of form their own relationship with the garden, um, which I can only hope will be a loving and long-lasting one. Thank you, everyone, for coming here today instead of the football. I think it's been absolutely wonderful to hear Marcel. Oh, thank you. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, Marshall. All the signings are next door. We'll be back in about 10, 15 minutes with Harriet Gibson and Michelle Kambasha. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about Is This OK? What was the sort of genesis of the creation of the book? So my book, for anyone who hasn't read it, is um, a coming-of-age story told through my internet search history. It's sort of everyone's worst nightmare in that I decided to... Uh, publicise all the, the creepy late night uh, Instagram stalking that I've been doing and beyond Instagram like I started being obsessed with people online in, when I was 15 and it's kind of snowballed from there and the book kind of came about as I had a bit of a, a professional lull the magazine I worked for had closed and 
I wasn't feeling like journalism was something that I should be doing anymore. And I went for a walk and I was kind of, my inner critic was calling me a stupid bitch. <laughs> she was saying, why have you not done anything with 20 years of your life apart from stare at people on the internet? Why have you not got any hobbies? Like, why is the only thing you know about your ex-boyfriend's ex-girlfriend? <laughs> and then I thought, wow, that's a book. <laughs> and then, yeah, so I started writing it and um, I realised that maybe the book was not just about social media, but more about sort of delving into the intentions that I had. Like, I basically just really crave intimacy and connection with people. And I think um, the internet's been a way of coping with things when life gets tough, but also is a way for me to kind of pursue my anthro anthropological uh, sort of passion in life, yeah. which is <laughs> wanting to know everything about what it's like to be in someone else's head and body. I think um, it's something that a lot of people can relate to. There's often an argument that people have that it's such a new generation thing, it's a millennial thing, but I always get the sense that actually it's something that really exists in all of us. Um, it's just that we have a different, more efficient um, channel to be able to stalk people, essentially. Yeah, I mean, my mum is certainly one of my inspirations. Our favourite pastime used to be walking around the streets of Saffron Walden in Essex and hoping that people left their curtains open so we could have a little snoop. And when I was a little girl, like way... Way before the internet, my favourite thing was to sit on top of my neighbour's uh, playhouse and stare at the elderly couple who lived next door. And I just watched them for hours. And I didn't, nothing happened. There was never any sort of um, like elderly fornication or... <laughs> <laughs> they were just making tea and chatting, but I, I, I guess I'm a bit of a voyeur. It's yeah. interesting, isn't it? Like, I feel like life's really lonely and I want to know what it is to experience someone else's world mm -hmm. yeah for sure and we talk often about our infatuation with celebrity culture but actually I think most of us are more kind of enticed by regular people is it not the reason why we kind of like kitchen sink dramas and um the idea of even like a celebrity going to a coffee shop or you know do you know what I mean yeah. it doesn't have to necessarily be about pomp and circumstance it can also just be about like doing regular things I don't know what it is about people that like that yeah, yeah. So well, I, I, I sort of have latched on to the term parasocial relationship when I'm talking about my book. And for anyone who doesn't know what that term means, it, um, it is a terminology that was coined in the 1950s by uh, psychologists who um, noticed that housewives were having kind of infatuation, infatuated attachments to... Um, the people on radios and on TVs, and if you think about housewives, they're quite lonely characters, you know, perhaps want to escape and imagine, have these imaginary affairs with these um, people that they feel really close to, even though that they're just sort of voices on a box. And it's only kind of accelerated as we've had more and more access to these people. But, yeah, when we, t when we think of parasocial relationships, we think of the celebrities, mm -hmm. you know, the Beyonce stands, etc. But actually, I realised that mo the, mo the majority of my infatuations are with people in my close proximity, whether or not it's someone at work who I've been really jealous of for a decade and had this private rivalry with. Or if it's, as I said, like an ex is ex. Like, mm -hmm. I, th I think a lot of girls that I speak to, straight girls anyway, who've got uh, boyfriends who've had these past glamorous beauties that you don't know anything about. You just have sort of snippets of information about mm -hmm. a holiday they went on or what she might be like. Um, I don't know. And, and you, you sort of develop these big crushes on people. 
um, even though you're miles away from them. Yeah. You sort of fill in the gaps, don't you? Yeah. It's like quite powerful imagining what someone might be like. Mm -hmm. And in reality, they're probably really boring, but yeah. It's, ex yeah, it's kind of a method of escapism as well, isn't it? Yeah, and it's also interesting because um, do you like, do you, what, I mean, I'm interested to ask you actually, do you think that you create an image of what you think they are or do you kind of come from the position of ground zero and then you slowly start to compile what you think they're like based on what you see or is it coming from the sort of celebrity sort of ideation of them being like amazing and then like them just slowly kind of disappointing you? Well I think it's quite sinister if I'm really honest with myself I think I'm trying to find out what someone's um, sort of negative attributes are mm. like a lot of the time when I'm looking at people online that I don't know that I'm interested in I'm trying to find like the chink in their armour mm -hmm. And like, you know, I want to find a picture of a side profile where they've got a slight double chin. <laughs> like, that's, that's sorry, I, I can't, uh, I, I think that is quite dark and I can't hear anyone laughing, so I feel really insecure about saying that. <laughs> I am really not, I am really not. She's a really good person. <laughs> I, I could vouch for this. You know, you just, you just, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm being, I'm just being honest about insecure, insecurity, I suppose. Like, I just want to know that everyone else feels a bit, ugly and thick like I do and um, the internet used to be anyway a really brilliant way to sort of create these little files on everyone like the good things and the bad things but I'm finding it less satisfying now I think everything's way more curated and it is a lot harder to find those disgusting side profiles because yeah. <laughs> they get deleted very yeah. quickly so in terms of your career as a journalist, obviously being a journalist is in itself a very, you know, inquisitive career. You're asking questions and you're trying to, you know, gauge or tease out stories from the subjects that you're speaking with. Um, I'm asking, so what came first? Like, was it Harriet happened, wanted to be a journalist because she's nosy? Or was it just something that you just felt like you might be good at and kind of fed your need to know more about people's lives? Or was it just like, I need a job? <laughs> I, well, I wanted to be a music journalist from a really young age because um, I really <clears throat> the thing that's really unique about me is I'm a girl, but I really like music. <laughs> um, but I um, I just wanted to get close to the people that were making me feel so seen. And I don't know. I mean, I'm sure everyone has this relationship with songs or musicians that play something that connects to you in such a way that you didn't even know you had a word for and um, I just wanted to get close to those people because I felt like it's a, it's a sort of form of delusion but I felt like I was like oh we're together in this when mm -hmm. I'd hear a song that connected to me um, and so I wanted to be a music journalist and um, that happened I was very fortunate I got in just before it got really tricky to do it mm -hmm. and um, I like anyone who's got sort of a, an addictive issue or obsession I used my addiction um in and kind of tried to legitimize it so when I'd research a musician I would be like yeah it's fine if I just go on this three-hour wormhole into his mum's Instagram that's that'll come up in conversation tomorrow <laughs> and the only reason why I say that is because I did once I won't name the band but I really like this band from New York once and I, I sort of fancied the front man and I got in too deep one night researching him and I found his mum's Facebook and I realised she was an artist and I, I got really, really in deep with them both and I realised they had quite an intimate relationship, almost like friends or lovers rather than mother and son. And the next day I, um, I, I made sure I dressed a bit like her. 
and I did the same thing. <laughs> I did the same thing when I interviewed um, Graham Coxon. I was like, oh, he quite. I was on his Twitter, and I was like, oh, he really likes little doodles. And so when I went to interview him, I brought along a notepad and I doodled a tea bag, <laughs> and I, I flicked open, and he spotted it, and he went, oh, do you draw? And I was like, yeah, it's not. Uh. <laughs> and <laughs> those two stories aren't in the book, so that's a Green Man exclusive. <laughs> so. Explain a little bit about your love and adoration for Chris Martin. I think yeah. a really did it, good. Does anyone fancy Chris Martin? Yeah. Someone at the back there. I see you. I see you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I've got a toxic. I call it a toxic turbo crush on him. So I feel physically sick when I look at him because I fancy him so much. <laughs> and um, well, this this book is is quite confusing. It's sort of a series of chapters about different obsessions that I've had with people online. But then it sort of there's an offshoot chapter where I um, I've just met my husband, I'm happy, and uh, my brain floats away and imagines what if my husband died and I were to meet Chris Martin at a celebrity party, and um, he takes me back to his five-story townhouse in West <laughs> London for Christmas. <clears throat> it's Christmas Eve, 11 months after Mark's tragic death. Chris says I'm welcome to spend the festive period with him in the townhouse. A few friends will be popping over. It's low-key, but might take my mind off my first Christmas as a widow. I agree, and to my surprise, we consummate our love a few hours later. It's very fast and not altogether pleasant. The next morning, I realised that the tryst was imaginary, the combination of a visceral night terror and thrush. <laughs> at midday, there's a knock at the door. I get that sinking feeling, disappointed that someone's puncturing our blissful love bubble. So his friends turn up, and then another knock at the door. That must be our special guest, beams Chris. I'm struck by a sense of dread as I hear a melodic, clipped Californian accent from the person who's stepping through the door. It's Gwyneth. <laughs> I can smell her before I see her. Burnt oak and satsumas. And once in the room, she's surrounded by celestial light. Harriet, sorry, Harriet. <laughs> I've heard all about you. She moves close and takes both my hands. I am so sorry for your loss. <laughs> Uh, and then she gives me some presents, including some lube and a vibrator. <laughs> um, Gwyneth corners me and says, you're going to have to leave soon because Apple needs her room back. And <laughs> I realise that I've got to go. It's not my home anymore. There's a uh, twist as well. Yeah, a round of applause. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a twist, as you just said, so you have to buy the book to know further how this ends or starts, who knows. I actually I found a word called limerence recently, which is um, a coping... It's a trauma response that children develop, which uh, limerence is when you have these sort of addictive, obsessional um, crushes on people and they help you cope with life. And I realised mm -hmm. that is the story of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Said, you said before that some people had interviewed you or, like, or people had read the book trying to sort of which is quite a common thing now, try to sort of diagnose you with some kind of issue. But you said that you've pretty gone, spoken to everyone you can, and they've just said, like, no, you're just an obsessive person or obsessed person. Yeah, my therapist said I'm really normal, and he knows. He, yeah. does, he does know. He knows everything. He says I'm really normal. I think just what's quite affronting is the, um, the honesty is uncomfortable, maybe, for some people. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think I'm really sane for saying what I've said because mm -hmm. a really damaged, insecure person wouldn't be able to put it out there in a book. Yeah. So, does that sound, I don't know if that sounds arrogant. I've just had to... There was one review where 
the, the writer said I might have borderline personality disorder mm -hmm. and I wrestled with that quite a lot mm -hmm. and I had to really like figure out like is there or OCD as well and I had to say like is, is that true and like I've mm -hmm. been questioning myself but I think I am just really normal I'm just open about it yeah and that is also an interesting thing as well that you mentioned the people will this is a thing that's also something to do with access and people having a certain language for things and in a way that we haven't had before, people kind of diagnosing people on the internet. I think that it's pretty dangerous. I think sometimes words now, especially sort of psychiatric conditions, are used very liberally by, you know, somebody that is completely unqualified to kind of diagnose someone. I'm always quite wary about it. Because it's like there's sometimes a bit of a difference between somebody doing some, posting like a really weird tweet on the internet then all of a sudden saying that they have like narcissistic personality disorder or whatever it might be. Yeah, everyone's a narcissist or a sociopath. Like if any yeah. of my friends get dumped, I'm like, well, they are, <laughs> like, you know. Same. We like to pathologize a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think also it's a generational thing. Like I feel like young people are a bit more like fluid with like, you know, they, they, they're sort of a bit more comfortable with a sort of um, mm -hmm. slightly erratic personality traits. Mm -hmm. And I guess, broadly speaking, in terms of your process of writing the book, how was that in terms of exposing yourself? Was it, did you get the big kind of like deep breath sort of freedom that after you completed it? Or was it another ball of like another round of anxiety and another round of anxiety? Do you feel completed by it? Do you feel there's more that you could have said? No, definitely no more. I think it was a disgusting process, as in creating anything is horrible. You're sort of waiting for magic to drop into your head. Yeah, it was quite confronting researching my life, mm -hmm. and it was quite humiliating owning up to a lot of the things, and I was really frightened about writing about ex-boyfriends, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, like I felt like, am I allowed to even talk about someone without their consent? Yeah. And uh, they haven't been in touch, so I'm guessing... <laughs> you only hit, you here tonight? <laughs> no, I think it is fine. Yeah. yeah. There was one thing that we'd um, spoken about, and it was about how much a budding journalist... There's so much... Um, not pressure, but in terms of how people are commissioned, there's a lot of pressure for people to give a lot of themselves and their stories at quite an, at any age, but especially an early age, because sometimes you're... And naturally, your personal stories are the ones that stand out. And sometimes there isn't that much... Um, sort of safeguarding for how much maybe like a 20-year-old person is going to sort of, you know, put their whole life and their experiences about something that might be traumatic or otherwise out there. And I wondered, like, what you thought about that. And I don't know how you would have felt about writing this book when you were 20, for example, when you haven't worked through... You haven't been through a lot of things, of course, lots of experiences, but feeling the pressure to kind of stand out and put that stuff out there? Yeah, I definitely remember. It's been happening for a while, hasn't it? Especially yeah. young women writing about like their trauma online mm -hmm. in order to sort of accrue some kind of um, popularity. Um, I think I definitely had a lot of moments where I wanted to, but part of me knew that I should wait until... I'd A, figured it out, and B, it was somewhere that was harder to access, like a book. You have to invest in me and, and the book before you read about it. And I, I, I'm very relieved that I didn't say a lot of the things that I wanted to say back then. Because I think, you know, in the last five years, um, I've, I went through the menopause when I was really young and I had a really uh, brutal birth. And all of those experiences um, sort of made me mature and I feel very at peace 
about my life. When you, you don't know, you know, when you come through the other side of quite a horrific period of your life, sometimes mm -hmm. you're a new person, and I felt like I could really reflect on who I was mm -hmm. and sort of wrap it up in a bow. Yeah. That being said, I'm sure I'll look back at this in 10 years and be like, <laughs> You mentioned also, uh, you've mentioned in in other interviews about how, you know, your menopause and kind of coming through that stage also kind of imbued a sense of confidence in you. I don't know if that's the right word. I don't know if that's how the best way to describe it. And of course, going through something that's so traumatic is never something that like you'd, you want to give you the confidence, but it is kind of... A life-changing experience. Yeah, it definitely gave me a lot of clarity. It also gave me a story, which is really yeah. useful if you want to be a writer. Like, mm. to have had a big life event, it's like, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think the thing about the menopause is it's really gnarly. Um, it strips you of everything, everything. Like, you, there were days where I found it difficult to speak and like, you forget everything, all your words, all your stories, all your phrases. It's like you think you want to say something and you look in your brain and the library's completely empty. There's just like a sort of soggy old piece of bread and you're like, I can't use that. <laughs> and then it physically has changed me uh, a lot. Like I don't have much stamina and, you know, I, I've lost a lot of confidence in how I look. It sort of dries you out a lot. Um, and it's painful. Am I just listing menopausal <laughs> symptoms? Sorry, it's Sunday morning. You're all knackered. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it's been brutal, but then I understand now why women in their 50s and 60s are so hardcore and cool, because they've endured something that's yeah. terrible, and when you come out the other side, I find it liberating, because it's almost like, um, I don't know, this is terrible, I, I'm, I feel equal to men for the first time mm -hmm. in my life. What way? don't know, like, I never ever would imagine that anyone would look at me and be like, Oh, she's a pretty young girl. I see. Mm -hmm. I see me as this like big old boulder that they're going to have to like be up against. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm quite. I feel. I feel slightly more um, aggressive as mm -hmm. a human, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is actually quite good because yeah. I think historically I've been frustrated that I've been like a little annoying sort of flower that mm -hmm. withers really quickly, and mm -hmm. I don't feel like that anymore. So it's like you feel like unapologetic in your yeah. aggression kind yeah, of thing, yeah, in yeah. a way that some a lot of men can be, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't have that until mm -hmm. I went through the menopause. Mm -hmm. Did you feel any sense of, like, responsibility to, not other people necessarily, but to yourself to tell that, that story authentically as possible? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think mainly that I felt that about um, childbirth. You know, the menopause list, I'm about to talk about childbirth now, so I'm sorry. <laughs> but I think talking about a bad birth felt quite radical to me because there's a lot of shame around uh, not being immediately joyful mm -hmm. after birth. Um, and my birth went wrong at every stage and um, it left me pretty traumatised mm -hmm. and I was diagnosed with PTSD afterwards. Um, and I wrestled with that for a long time and I was really scared about writing about it. And I was scared about writing it because I don't want to put anyone off having a kid. And also I didn't want to seem ungrateful, especially because I conceived my child through donor egg IVF. You're, you're expected to be super, super grateful. But the reality is like it, it, it messes you up a lot of the time. Um, and I wasn't prepared for that. And I wish I want other people to maybe be more aware of it. For sure. And I think it is... I mean, it goes back to the kind of like mummy blogger, Instagrammy sort of start side of stuff. Um, I find it quite, I don't know, I guess it can be genuine, like you say, but it's also sometimes wrapped up in this like sort of 
veneer of perfection about how a childbirth should go, but a lot of the times, more, not more often than not, I don't know statistically, but it's not an easy job being a nurse, for example, because they go through, and they see so many different things, so many complications happen. I wonder if there's a process of women like needing to tell their stories in a more authentic way as well, or feeling comfortable to, or feeling brave to, without being made to feel like imperfect. Yeah, I think so. I do sort of worry that maybe as a millennial woman, I've taken up quite a lot of space. Mm-hmm. Doing, like, there are a lot of us out there doing it, which is why I wanted to be extra sort of nasty about myself. I wanted to, like, um, I don't know, justify it <laughs> in some way. But, yeah, I, I suppose the whole book comes back to connection and the point of life, mm-hmm. which I see as having those moments of, like, complete um, understanding and, yeah. and, like... Like, even talking to you, Michelle and I got a train up together, and I just like talking to you so much because um, I feel like we're on the same page and having those moments where you're, you know, you don't feel like you're having to pretend to be someone else Mm. and you're almost seeing inside someone's soul. I think, for me, that's really important. And my book is a kind of offering of my soul Mm -hmm. to the world in the hope that everyone can get something out of it. I think they can. I think they will. Um, well, thank you so much, Harriet, for that talk. I had thank fun. You. Yeah, that was lovely. Thank um, you. And thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Hope you've enjoyed your festival and enjoy the rest of it. Um, yeah, thank you. Thanks. <laughs>